0: Hi, I'm Jay from San Diego. I'm Chase from Seattle. I'm Jamie from New York City. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did.
1: It's easy. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate.
2: I'm Jesse Thorne. There's something really to be said, and I say this as someone who fell into this category, for being a, a sissy heterosexual in high school. It Absolutely. can really work out for you.
3: Well, I mean, I think you're um you're seen as non threatening by females and um and as long as you're in an environment where you're not seen as threatening by males, you can really uh you can really thrive.
2: It depends on your ability to to sort of make the pivot, so to speak.
3: Um you mean the pivot from friendship to, to romance? Yeah. Well you just gotta pounce. <laughs> Um, You know (laughs) And then you know You you can't pounce so much That you get a reputation As a pouncer (laughs) You just gotta pounce Enough
2: Me and Daniel Handler Romantics at heart This week On Bullseye (laughs) On this week's show Daniel Handler Delves into his memories Of young love To pen the novel Why we broke up The twist He writes from The girl's perspective and the Squar brothers talk about their new comedy album, from performing as identical twins to broadening their sports nerd fan base. Plus, I suggest the Canadian sitcom The Newsroom, and composer Nico Muley shares the song that changed his life. Stick around for Bullseye. Let's go! <laughs> Every week on Bullseye, we like to start things off with a couple of picks from some of our favorite culture critics. And this week, I am joined by Mark Frauenfelder, the founder and editor of BoingBoing.net. Hey, Mark, how are you doing? Great. How are you doing, Jesse? I am doing fantastic. Well, let's start with this uh, online game called Depict.
1: Um, Tell me a little bit about what Depict is. All right, it's a game that you play on your your iPhone or iPad. And it's like Pictionary. If, you, if you're familiar with the, word, the game Pictionary, where you draw a card and there's a word for you to illustrate. And you can't spell out the word. That's a no-no. So, for example, the word might be daffodil. You have to draw a daffodil. And other players from around the world who also have this depict program downloaded... Have to guess what the word is, and they have a a choice of you know there's like six different words they can pick from, and depending on how quickly they guess, uh, they get a higher score. If they're the first one to correctly guess the word, they get a higher score. And if they if everyone guesses your you, the thing you drew, then you get more points as the as the illustrator because that means you did a really good job. It's really fun because I, I love the fact that you're playing with other people instead of just being a game where, you know, you're you're playing against. The microprocessor it's nice to
2: have a game that is really native to the thing that you're playing it on i mean that it's really takes advantage of the the touchability of the ipad and the iphone and also the native
1: connectedness yeah it does all of that that's that's a really good point point. it's simple drawing tools it reminds me of the old like Mac paint tools it's, it's pixel based and you pick from a color palette, and you could pick from an eraser, and you can fill. It's got that kind of old-school look to it, but it it works very well for doing these simple illustrations.
2: On the subject of simple drawing tools, let's talk about the Blackwing 602 pencil. I I don't think there has ever been a pencil that has inspired a more devoted following than this
1: one. Tell me a, a little bit about it. People are nuts about this pencil. It's been around for, for decades. It was, I think, introduced in, in probably the mid-20th century. <clears throat> and the, the logo of it is half the pressure, twice the speed. It's got a very rich, almost greasy feel to it. And it just makes really dark lines. And it's been a favorite of composers. John Steinbeck is rumored to go through between 30 to 60 of these a day when he was <laughs> <like, laughs> writing a manuscript. And people love them. And then in the, in the late 90s the the tooling broke that made the special eraser. It's got a distinctive rectangular eraser and you need a special ferrule. It's not the typical cylindrical plug eraser. And that broke and so the company just stopped making them. Wait, Had did no you say ferrule? Ferrule. Yeah, F E R R U L E.
2: That's the That's kind a... of word that you only know when you're the editor of Make Magazine <laughs> or uh,
1: like a mechanical engineer of some kind. Well, honestly, I probably didn't learn about it until I became obsessed with this pencil. <laughs> and so, it, uh, you know, after the existing supply ran out, they started going on eBay for $5 a pencil, $10 a pencil. $20 a pencil uh, I think around the time it hit $30 a pencil a company called California Cedar Products started to make a a uh, knockoff version that uh, I believe that they have the license to do it they call it the Blackwing 602 the Palomino Blackwing 602 rather than the Eberhard Faber and they did one that was a misfire it wasn't good and I I panned it on Boing Boing and they about a year later they made another one and this one hits the mark. I have, a, I have one of the original pencils that I, that I keep and use, not really for special occasions, but just... Uh, for religious to, purposes. Yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a talisman of some kind. And so I compared the two, and this, it really gets the job done. And so I, I just love this pencil. They cost, I think, about a $1.50 or so. I buy them by the dozen. You can even buy them by the gross, but people are are crazy for these pencils, and I think with good reason. It's the best pencil I ever had, it, and it makes me feel good to use it.
2: Well, uh, Mark Frauenfelder's picks are Depict, uh, a game for the iPad and iPhone, which you can get in the iTunes App Store, and the Blackwing Six O Two pencil, which you can get at your local stationery store or online. Mark Frauenfelder, of course, is the founder and editor of boingboing.net, and he also hosts uh, Boing Boeing's great Gweek podcast. Mark, thank you so much. Yeah, you bet, Jesse. Thank you. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you were a teenager, which I'm guessing you were at some point, if you're not one now, you were probably at some point in love. And if you were in love as a teenager, you were probably out of love at some point too. It's that falling apart of love that's at the center of Daniel Handler's new novel, Why We Broke Up. It's uh, a first person Letter, what's that? Second person? Is that second person when you're writing a letter about something that happened to you?
3: It is. Second person. Oh, geez, Louise.
2: It's a second person...
3: Well, I mean, it's first person directed to a second person, so I don't know if it really counts as second person or first person.
2: Oh, geez. We're going to get letters, Daniel Handler.
3: <laughs> um, that's true. Yes. Please direct your comments, listeners, to Daniel Handler, <laughs> care of Barack Obama, 1600 Pennsylvania <laughs> Avenue, Washington, D.C.
2: Anyway, his his book uh, takes the form of a, a, a series of uh, letters uh, uh, written by a teenage girl to her erstwhile beau, uh, accompanied by paintings of objects sent in a box the paintings are by Myra Kalman a, a past guest on this show they're absolutely beautiful if daniel handler's name sounds familiar and it's not for his work under his own name he's also uh he's also a celebrated and best-selling author under the pen name the lemony snicket um, his best-selling books there have been turned into movies and sold a bajillion copies, and he has appeared around the world as the Lemony Snicket's uh, assistant or um, representative. Uh, Daniel Handler, welcome to Bullseye.
3: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
2: This book reminded me that I don't remember as much as I'd like to about high school how how close are you don't you
3: think that's probably a mercy
2: (laughs) i don't know like i i I had a great high school experience for the most part but i i genuinely i feel bad about it i mean i'm not i'm i'm not even especially old but i i lose touch with things very quickly and i feel sort of sad about it and i wonder how close you are to your uh, your high school experience
3: uh too close clearly um (laughs) I mean, I, for the most part, had a marvelous time in high school, but certainly those years made a huge impression on me. Um, I still have the old gang from high school. We're all close and keep in touch. And um, I mean, for instance, in the promotional materials for this book, it says that I was dumped at least three times in high school. And when that was read out loud on a radio program, my friend from high school called me and said, it's at least five times. (laughs) 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 Um, so uh, i mean those years have yeah have left a lasting impression and um i never thought of it as really a blessing i always assumed it was a curse that i could remember things from that time quite well
2: i i'm married to uh a woman that i started dating when i was in high school wow but i i she will she will she will tell me things that we did together and they sound like beautiful romantic stories that happened to other people to me (laughs) well
3: well, you should maybe get that looked at
2: (laughs) do you think it's possible i have some sort of tumor pressing against a a hypothalamus or something Uh, it certainly
3: could be or it could be that your wife is gaslighting you (laughs) (laughs) she could be after the rubies that are buried somewhere in the house in which you live and she's trying to make you out to be insane
2: This is a really long-term plan. If if that's what's going on, she is really in. This is a long, long, long con, Daniel Handler. (laughs) This is year year thirteen. I think think an argument can be
3: made that marriage is inherently a long con, (laughs) which would mean a high school romance is kind of a short con.
2: Tell tell me a little bit about yourself in high school, because I think your your two protagonists in this book. Um, Min, the voice of the book, the girl is a sort of, um, uh, she is forever battling, uh, the descriptor artsy Yeah, and her boyfriend is, uh, a jock. I mean, he is a bright jock. He's, he's not a, he, he's not a meathead. Um, but he is, he has that sort of, he has that sort of blithe jockey quality where everything works out for him yeah um what were you like in high school
3: um i was well i had the privilege of attending an academic high school here in san francisco so um which i think was all right i went to lowell high school indeed and so it wasn't a kind of a sink or swim cesspool of violence that one often reads about in high schools um there wasn't um any typical bullying. And so a kind of um, sissy heterosexual such as myself could do pretty well. Um, and um, and I did pretty well. I was artsy. I wouldn't have apologized about being artsy. Um, and I had friends. And I mean, we were very, very pretentious. We enjoyed going to cafes, which in the pre-Starbucks era was in and of itself an artsy thing to do. And we watched a lot of films that I don't even understand now when I see them. (laughs) And we listened to a lot of so-called difficult music. And, um, you know, we were small, incestuous groups, and we developed very high, passionate crushes on one another and such. And I wanted to be a writer the whole time I wanted to be a writer.
2: There's something really to be said, and I say this as someone who fell into this category, for being... A, a sissy heterosexual in high school it Absolutely. can really work out for you
3: well i mean i think you're um, you're seen as non-threatening by females and um and as long as you're in an environment where you're not seen as threatening by males you can really uh you can really thrive
2: it depends on your ability to to sort of make the pivot so to speak
3: um you mean the pivot from friendship to to romance yeah well you just got to pounce <laughs> Um, you know, and then you know you you can't pounce so much that you get a reput- reputation as a pouncer. <laughs> you just gotta pounce enough.
2: You're now describing something that that sounds inappropriate and upsetting.
3: <laughs> I'm, so, I'm sorry. Do you need to talk this over with your wife? Is that, is that where this is going?
2: I, I'm I'm a little bit not sure about this pouncing thing that you're working over.
3: Oh, well, I'm not working over it now. I've been married to a woman forever and ever. But, um, but in high school, yeah, you're friends with someone and you're friends with someone and you go to a movie and you both agree it's very significant and then you walk across the Golden Gate Bridge and the fog is covering the city with mystery and allure and if you don't make a move then, then you're going to be friends forever.
2: There's this thing about romance in high school where it is... All, almost exhaustingly important. I mean everything in high school is exhaustingly important, right? But
3: well, it's either exhaustingly important or not even worth mentioning. There's yeah, certainly not anything in between, I think, for most people in high school.
2: Do you find it do you find it e- easy to recall that level of I don't know that level of e- e- emotional intensity?
3: Um, I think I do. I think it comes naturally to me. I mean, I think my memories of high school, for whatever reason, are pretty clear. And then also I'm in a field that requires a certain amount of obsession to do well. Um, If you're a a novelist, it means you have to take a very, very strong interest in the story you're telling, past all reason, really. And, um, And so I think I can relate to that kind of love affair because I have it with books that I read and I have it with things that I'm researching and projects I'm working on. Um, and I think that many people um, are encouraged as they grow older to um, to have a certain amount of disassociation from um, something. You're not supposed to think about something all the time. You're supposed to think about a bunch of things for a short period of time. And um, I, luckily, I'm in a profession where that's not actually encouraged. You're encouraged to be a little obsessive.
2: It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Daniel Handler. He's the author of Why We Broke Up. The novel takes the form of a letter written by a high school girl to her first love. Handler also wrote a series of unfortunate events under the pen name Lemony Snicket. Did you happen to
3: bring a copy of your book with you? I didn't, but um, there's a nice woman from Little Brown now who's rushing into the room with one.
2: So I'm going to ask you to read this little description. It's on page 80 of your book. Uh, This is Min describing uh, a day at her high school.
3: Oh, yeah. I've read that out loud at various um, uh, kind of reading series, mostly in bars. And um, it's something to read that description of a typical high school day. And it starts with people smiling in recognition. And by the end of it, people are generally ordering another round. (laughs) Okay, here it is. Because the day it was school. It was the bells too loud or rattly and broken speakers that would never get fixed. It was the bad floors squeaky and footprinted and the bang of lockers. It was my, writing my name in the upper right-hand corner of the paper or Mr. Nelson would automatically deduct five points, and in the upper left-hand corner of the paper, or Mr. Peters would deduct three. It was the pen just giving up midway and scratching invisible ink scars on the paper or suiciding the leak on my hand and trying to remember if I touched my face recently and am I a ballpoint coal miter on my cheeks and chin. It was boys in a fight by the garbage cans for whatever reason, not my friends, not my crowd, my old locker partner crying about it on the bench I sat on freshman year with a gang I barely see anymore. Quizzes, pop quizzes, switching identities during attendance when there's a sub, anything to pass time, more bells. It was the principal on the intercom, two whole minutes of ambient hum and shuffling, and then a very clear, that's on, Dave, and it clicking off. It was a table selling croissants for French club knocked over by Billy Keeger, like always, and the strawberry jam, a sticky stain on the ground for three days before anyone cleaned it. Old trophies in a box, a plaque with this year's names waiting to be filled in on the tag, blank and coffin-shaped. It was the deep daydream in waking up with a teacher wanting an answer and refusing to repeat the question. Another bell, the announcement, ignore that bell, and Nelson scowling, he said ignore it to people zipping backpacks. It was the paperwork and homeroom stapled together wrong so everyone has to rotate them to fill them out. It was the bullshit and tryouts for the school play, the banners for the big game Friday and then the big banner stolen and the announcement to rat someone out if anyone knew anything. It was Jen and Tim breaking up, Skyler getting his car taken away, the rumor that Angela was pregnant, but then the counter rumor, no, it's the flu, everyone throws up with the flu. It was the days the sun wasn't even trying to get out of the clouds and be nice for once in its starry life. It was wet grass, damp hems, the wrong socks I forgot to throw out and so now found myself wearing, the sneaky leaf falling from my hair where it had nested for hours to surely someone's delight. Serena getting her period and not having anything for it like always, scrounging from girls she didn't even know in the bathrooms during second. Big game Friday, go beavers, beat them beavers, the dirty jokes so boring to everyone but freshman and Kyle happily. Choir tryouts, three girls selling knitting to help people in a hurricane. It was the library having nothing to offer no matter what needed looking up. It was fifth period, sixth, seventh, clock watching and cheating on tests just because why not? It was suddenly being hungry, tired, hot, furious, so unbelievably startling sad. Fourth period, how could it only be fourth, is what it was. Hester Prynne, Agamemnon, John Quincy Adams, distance times rate equals something, lowest common whatever, the radius, the metaphor, the free market. Someone's red sweater, someone's open folder. It was wondering how someone could lose a shoe, just one shoe, and not see it when it was hopeful on the windowsill for weeks. Call this number on the bulletin board. Call if you've been abused, if you want to kill yourself, if you want to go to Austria this summer with the other losers in the picture. It was strive in bad letters on a fading background. Wet paint on a dry floor. Big game Friday. We need your spirit. Give us your spirit. Locker combinations, vending machines, hooking up, cutting class, the secrets of smoking and headphones and the rum in a soda bottle with mints to cover the breath, that one sickly boy with thick glasses and an electronic wheelchair, Thank God I'm not him, or the neck brace, or the rash, or the orthodontics, or that drunk dad who showed up at a dance to hit her across the face, or that poor creature who someone needs to tell, you smell, fix it, or it will never, never, never will it get better for you. The days were all day, every day. Get a grade, take a note, put something on, put somebody down, cut open a frog, and see if it's like this picture of a frog cut open. But at night, the nights were you, finally on the phone with you, Ed, my happy thing, the best part.
2: One of the things about high school is that it is this combination of having agency and not having agency in really weird and arbitrary combinations and being sort of swept up in things that are like rivers, like some of the pros in, 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 your description of high school and being kind of caught up in hurry up and waits that you have no power over is a very odd thing to be in that it is quite a relief to get out of because at least you know that if you mess up, it's just your fault and you just have to deal with it.
3: (laughs) Um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think for the most part, high school is designed, it seems to be the worst possible scenario for the people in it. Um, <laughs> but frankly, I don't know really what would be better given the scenario one's in in adolescence. But certainly, I mean, whenever I visit a high school, I think that if there were adults in an office building... And every 40 minutes, a bell rang, and they had to run across to the opposite end of the office building and then think very hard about something completely different from the thing they were told to think very hard about in the last 40 minutes. No adult would work there. They would say, this is complete madness. I can't do a whole lot of algebra and then run across this building and get yelled at if I'm late and then have someone say, we're now thinking about Billy Budd, and that's all we're thinking about. We're not thinking about algebra that you just had to think about very hard. And and that's, in fact, what we p- put adolescence in, even with the knowledge that adolescent brains and bodies are exactly the wrong kind of brains and bodies to have that kind of thing go on. And yet, by the same token, I don't... I mean, I'm, um, I'm not an advocate of um, various experimental education programs that I've visited and taken notes on. Um, it's a tough time. I mean, I, I'm, my hat is off to anyone who makes it through adolescence.
2: For a little while, my brother when he was in high school (laughs) went to one of those schools it's like an anarchist school where well it's like a hyper democratic school where um all of the students vote on everything yeah
3: i visited some of those schools
2: it was a disaster yeah i mean (laughs) it was a total unmitigated
3: disaster. Well, I mean, who on earth thinks town hall meetings ought to go on for all day long? You know, and that's, that's kind of what those schools are. I mean, if anything, I think you can emerge from a school thinking wherever I want to live, I want there not to be a democracy. I would, <laughs> I would rather live under a king than have any more of this. Stick
2: around to hear about Daniel Handler's worst high school breakup. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and PRI. Public Radio International.
4: Production of Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is supported in part by the menswear blog Put This On, presenting the Put This On Gentlemen's Association. Members receive a handmade pocket handkerchief in the mail every 60 days. More information at putthison.com. And by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered. Online at ask.metafilter.com.
2: Hey podcast listeners, review our show in iTunes. It makes a big difference and it only takes a second. I'm waiting for you to do it. You're opening iTunes now. You're typing in Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. You're clicking on review. Now you're clicking on that fifth star. Now you're typing in why the show is so great. Now I'm thanking you. Great work. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Daniel Handler. He's the author of Why We Broke Up. The novel takes the form of a letter written by a high school girl to her first love. The book also includes illustrations of different objects collected over the course of the relationship. Stuff like movie tickets, notes, a pair of earrings. Those illustrations are by the artist Myra Kalman. I was surprised that you, to read that you started with the objects in your collaboration with Myra Kalman. Um, tell me a little bit about how, how this sort of structure of the book came about.
3: Well, um, my, I was a fan of Myra's forever and, um, I, um, I, I somewhat cynically cultivated a friendship with her. I had, I met her and cultivated a friendship with her in order to bamboozle her into working with me because I was such a big <laughs> fan. Um, and we did a picture book together, um, published under Lemony Snicket's name, called 13 Words. And that was a more traditional collaboration in which I wrote a manuscript and I gave it to Myra and she agreed to illustrate it. Um, When we decided to work on something else, uh, I said, well, well, let's start with you. Why don't you tell me what you want to paint? And I couldn't really imagine what Myra was going to tell me she wanted to paint because she paints so many strange and wondrous things. So uh, for all I knew, I was going to have to write a biography of Sigmund Freud or something. But instead she showed me various small, ordinary objects that she collected, that she keeps in drawers, rubber bands and bottle caps and matchbooks and all sorts of strange little items. And I started to think about what makes strange items look magical and luminous. And one is when they're painted by Myra Kalman, and the other is when they're infused with romantic memory. And from there, the idea of a long letter... Um, with all of these objects infused with romantic memory, um, turning into a novel came came into being.
2: Is that how you ended up writing from the perspective of uh, the girl and not the boy?
3: Well, I mean, I think <laughs> the easy answer is that in the case of the relationship between Min and Ed in the novel, if it was written from the point of view of the boy, it would be about half a page long. <laughs> um, I've been on this tour, and sometimes people in line have been asking, are you going to write a novel that's from the point of view of Ed? And then I quickly write one on a Post-it for them. <laughs> it, it usually says something like, who? Oh, her. <laughs> uh, um, so I think one is that Min Green is the character who is um, is full of romantic expression, and so it made sense for her to tell it.
2: It seems like there uh, there has been an explosion of... um. Uh, I guess the adjective is uh, quirky young women in media in the past 10 years or so. And they tend to feel like they are created from a very male perspective, a- at least to me. I mean, I- I'm a dude, so maybe I'm not the best judge of this. Right. But they've, they just, they, they tend to feel like just, just someone was like, well, what's the ultimate chick that, that me or, I don't know who would be a good example. Patton Oswalt would be into <laughs> um, Patton's awesome. He's been on the show several times. It's not intended as an insult to
3: Patton. No, no, of course. Um, <laughs> I was just picturing an enormous fan of Star Wars. That's all I can picture is <laughs> the girl for Patton Oswalt.
2: Um, well, you know, a girl that that's, that's really into movies. Um, and... And I wonder if you were—I I wonder if you were sort of worried about that trope and and sort of self-conscious about it.
3: Um, I don't think so. I was interested in um, in someone who would um, take their cues from culture, just because I think that's so much what what adolescence is. You know, I mean, by the time you're in sixth grade, the number of of pieces of culture you've consumed that are about relationships that are about how people meet and hook up and stay together or fight or break up or get over each other you know that entire narrative inside and out before you've had anything that can be construed as a relationship and I don't know how there would be another way to go about doing it and I think that um that Min's story is a story of someone who's consumed so many romantic pieces of culture that she's trying for a romance that turns out to be impossible in her situation.
2: There's also an odd relationship between romance as it is represented in the real world, as it is represented in in fiction and romance as it functions, especially in the contemporary real world. I mean, I know that all the girls that I dated when I was in high school, like I don't really remember, I don't even really remember asking any of them out. (laughs) We certainly never went to any sock hops or anything.
3: You just hung out and pounced? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I was a romantic, yeah. I, I mean, I, But, I mean, I think, you know, my notion of romance was fueled by a notion of what girls might want, which was fueled by a notion of pieces of culture that I was seeing. And, um, I, you know, one date that I did, uh, I mean, I must have done it 20 times over the course of high school – was take some girl for a walk across the Golden Gate Bridge, because it seemed to me that it was romantic. And it is romantic. But, I mean, it's hard to say when you're that young where the self-consciousness and, ap- and aping of culture meets a genuine experience. Um, but, I mean, I think, it's, um, I think there's no other way to go about doing it.
2: I, I recently drove across the Golden Gate Bridge. Uh, I mean a week ago not even a week ago three or four days ago i drove across the golden gate bridge and as i was driving across the golden gate bridge uh, i I literally said out uh, out loud to my wife man the golden gate bridge
3: really delivers yeah it does
2: i mean that that golden gate bridge i mean it is awesome
3: yeah it's extremely well done
2: that's all i I guess that's all i really have to say (laughs) you'll find no argument from me
3: you heard it here first, NPR listeners. The Golden Gate Bridge, what a place! It's it's amazing. They really you know where else. I mean, I don't mean to be a name dropper, but Paris, France, that's a hell of a town.
2: <laughs> I don't know if you've ever heard about this canyon in Arizona, but it is yeah. mighty grand.
3: Jesse and I are co-hosting a show where we're presenting overlooked treasures, <laughs> little hidden moments you might not have heard about. <laughs>
2: What culture was as important to you when you were in high school as uh, these made-up Hollywood films of the Golden Age of Cinema are to men in the novel?
3: Uh, literature. I was very very interested in books. I like to go to Green Apple Books and um, buy cheap copies of books I heard were cool and try to read them. Did um, you
2: actually read them? What what, book, what books did you? Did I did. You and did I, you, you know? Not? It
3: wasn't until I was about. I think 30 that I really learned that you could put down a book that you didn't like. I just used to slog (laughs) through them, um, books that I didn't like. But, I mean, I also found a lot of books that I did like. But, I mean, I didn't know anything. You know, I, um, I had read something about Andy Warhol, and so I bought an album that had a banana on it with Andy Warhol's name, and then that turned out to be amazing. And then I found a novel that was called Venus and Furs, that I think I assumed was named after the Velvet Underground song rather than vice versa. And so I read it and, you know, it was a Penguin classic and there were all these other European sexy classics advertised in the back. And so I made a list and I did that. That was the kind of person I was. I was fully immersed in it. I read, I I always tell this story that I found a copy of um, The Master and Margarita in the bargain bin outside a bookshop and it had been stripped the cover was ripped off and so there was no there was no information about the book except it was called The Master and Margarita and i assumed it was sexual there wasn't even a there was nowhere where the author's name was listed on my copy and so then i read this mad fantastic russian thing that turned out to be so much more fun than a dirty book although i probably wouldn't have admitted that at the time And then what was wonderful about it is that I didn't know where it came from. I didn't know who the author was. It wasn't until years later that I stumbled across another copy. You know, it was pre-Googling, of course, and so you couldn't know anything except what was right there. I was fully immersed in the world of literature and mystery. That was the thing that was most important to me.
2: What did you read all of that you didn't like?
3: Hmm. I'm trying to think. Mark Twain, a lot of Mark Twain. Mark Twain really i didn't like yeah you
1: know
2: you know that that is like the one piece of classic classic literature that's actually pleasant to read right? no
3: it isn't <laughs> <laughs> you know i've never really gone public you about this. i don't get it i don't get that guy um <laughs> But, you know, things like, um, I mean, it wasn't so much things that I didn't like as that it was things that were incomprehensible. You know, yeah, I read Ulysses for the first time when I was 15 years old and I had no idea what was going on. And I just kept reading and reading and reading. I read Lawrence Durrell's entire Alexandria Quartet, which wasn't nearly as kind of sexy. I mean, it was sexy, but it didn't have enough sex in it. It was something that I wanted, but I just kept reading it. And, you know, through these kind of double crossings of Egyptian lovers and and persimmons ripening in the air and the scent of the Nile and, you know, this sort of purpley prose of Lawrence Durrell's where a little goes a long way. And I read, I mean, that must be a thousand pages total. And, um, it, it, uh, and I just kept reading it because I thought, well, that's what you have to do. When you pick up a book, you have to finish it. And if the book is part of a quartet, you have to read all four.
2: I'm still hung up on this Mark Twain thing. It's as though I asked you about movies and you said like, oh yeah, well, I was into stuff like, you know, Oh, de DeLue, but I, didn't, I never really got that Hitchcock guy.
3: Oh, please. It's like
2: the one thing that ever- happened.
3: <laughs> no, I, um, I've never been a Twain man and, um... I um, a Once a long time ago, I agreed to write an introduction for a book by Mark Twain that I had never read, and I read it, I was trying to read it, and about halfway through, I was disliking it so intensely, I couldn't imagine what I would say for an introduction. I had to call the publisher very meekly and make some excuse, because I didn't really have the courage to say, this book blows. I don't know anything about this book. My introduction will be, I pity you, buy something else.
2: well i i i admire i i admire your gumption to not like mark twain
3: oh thank you well i mean it's not gumption you know i'm not i'm not doing it to be ornery i just i just don't see what the deal is it's never funny to me i mean the innocence abroad is a book i like a lot okay but um but the, the real classics by mark twain i find not funny and often uncomfortably unfunny
2: fair enough i mean he had that special outfit you got to hand it to him for that
3: well yeah i mean he definitely knew how to manage a career
2: and a special outfit specifically
3: (laughs) well i I don't know (laughs) if you get me on this role i'm only going to be meaner and meaner about mark twain and, and you know i heard the guy was fun so i wish him nothing but the best
2: tell me about your worst uh breakup in high school
3: um Well, in ninth grade, uh, she called me while I was babysitting. You you know, it was one of those things where you arrive in school and suddenly it's all off with your girlfriend. There's nothing and you tell yourself, oh, she's just in a bad mood or something. But every time you talk to her over the course of the school day, it's terrible. And then... Um, it was a Friday night, I think. And I, um, and I was babysitting, um, for this kid down the block. And then she called me, you know, she said, I'll call you later. And I said, Oh, I'll be babysitting. So you have that number when I babysit. And, um, but knowing just the whole time playing with this kid and making him dinner and things like that, that later my girlfriend was going to call me and dump me because that was clearly what was going to happen. That's what I mostly remember. I remember chatting with the kid, waiting for him to go to bed, knowing that then the phone would ring and that then I would get dumped.
2: Daniel Handler, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to be on Bullseye. It It was really a pleasure. Oh,
3: my pleasure. I appreciate your interest.
2: Daniel Handler is the author of the novel Why We Broke Up. Uh, his collaborator is the artist Myra Kalman he also writes books as the Lemony Snicket uh, he's got a new series of Lemony Snicket books in the offing as well as a new novel about pirates Yes, uh, on the horizon
3: it's true, all those things are true
2: It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Nico Muley's a different kind of classical composer. Sure, he went to Juilliard, and yes, he did just premiere his work at the English National Opera last year. And of course, he's worked with the likes of Philip Glass. But on the other hand, he's collaborated with pop performers like Bjork. He's worked on arrangements for indie groups like Grizzly Bear. And just last month, he typed out an extended rave on his blog about the reality show Jersey Shore. Nico Muley says the song that changed his life is a piece by Steve Reich, Music for 18 Musicians. Reich is an American composer. He's composed innovative minimal music for decades and continues to release work today. Music for 18 Musicians was written in 1974 and was Reich's first stab at writing for large ensembles. Muley, though, didn't hear the piece until the mid-90s when he bought the CD as a music student. He was 14.
0: I was sitting on the floor of my parents' house and I I, I just remember sort of popping it in and, and, you know, it starts and you're immediately right there. There's kind of, there's kind of no introductory material and no kind of, it's just, here is the world of this piece. There's this kind of outrageous, decadent bass clarinet thing. And you just think, well, great, that's just excellent. It's kind of in its own world. It, it sort of outlines at the very beginning what it's what the tools are that it's go, that it's going to be working with, and then sticks with those. It's a, it's an ensemble of, of amplified sort of strings, and woodwinds, and uh, mallet instruments. It was the first time I realized that music could be fast and slow at the same time. There's this sense of the sort of textural language of the piece being very slowly shifting, sort of like a helicopter shot over over a landscape. The most sort of underused instrument, I would say, are are the vibraphones, which are used in this kind of structural way to indicate when the pattern will, will change. what's what's kind of gorgeous about music creating musicians is there's really one instrument that comes in um and goes away which is the, which is a, a pair of maracas which is this kind of magical moment but it's 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 a kind of genius thing right in this very lush texture about halfway through all of a sudden you have this you have this these little dry beans And it was, just, it was something that, that sort of felt like the exact right length. Um, it was sort of more of an experience than it was a piece. And then you, you can sort of come up for air 56 minutes later or whatever it is. It completely revised my sense of how a composer could function in a community, in a sense. And it, it, the idea that you're not making these pieces of heroic narrative, but what, but instead that what you're making is like this kind of thing that could only work with this enormous amount of cooperation that it required all these people to make this very very beautiful thing. The same thing you feel if you watch sort of six people operate a gigantic puppet or something. It just felt like something sort of huge coming out of a, a, a bunch of small processes in a kind of beautiful way. You know, it it, it was a completely life altering thing because you, 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 you or I hadn't realized that, that, that there was music that was so clean and so ecstatic and so measured but also wild and all all at the same time.
2: Nico Muley on the song that changed his life Music for 18 Musicians by Steve Reich. You can find Nico Muley online at NicoMuhly That's N I C O M U H L Y ycom happens if you type woman who had face into google sure you could go find out on your computer or you could wait and let your radio tell you i think you should wait i mean i have a vested interest it's bullseye for maximumfun.org and pri public
3: radio international there. My name's Graham Clark. And I'm Dave Shumka. And together we host a podcast called
0: Stop Podcasting Yourself. This is a file that you download from the internet and then you listen to it in your pod. What's that about you ask? Well, who are you to ask? Who do you think you are? Yeah, get lost bozo. (laughs) We're a couple of stand-up comedians in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. And every week we bring a guest on the show. Sometimes they're Canadian. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes they're a ghost. It's like you're sitting in on a friendly... uh, Uh, afternoon chat plus we're canadian so you get a tax break (laughs) you can find us on itunes or online at Uh, maximumfun.org
2: you know what's great social media so social that's why you should follow us on twitter at bullseye and like us on facebook just search for bullseye with jesse thorne it's bullseye I'm Jesse Thorne. My guests, Randy and Jason Sklar, are a stand-up comedy team, twin brothers from St. Louis, Missouri. Mm-hmm. They, they're well known uh, for their long-running ESPN classic series, Cheap Seats. Uh, they're also the hosts of Sklarbro Country, a uh, comedy podcast about sports. Um, and they're well known in the uh, stand-up comedy scene around the country. Uh, their brand new stand-up comedy CD is called Hendersons and Daughters. Here's a clip. Here's the thing. I
5: think this is a litmus test for us to understand that we're actually getting older. Because at this point in our lives, we would rather stay at a good hotel instead of a hip hotel. And that's the thing. We, I don't know if you guys have ever stayed at a really hip hotel. But like, we, it's a, such a hip hotel that it dares you to admit that it's a sh**. Hotel, you know, <laughs> we were staying at this hotel in New York. We go, it's so hip. You go down in the lobby, there's like house music pumping, <laughs> it's ridiculous. <laughs> there's a huge plasma flat screen, 50 inch screen, and then the image is Adolf Hitler <laughs> the devil behind <laughs> the front desk. And it's like, <laughs> okay, all right, all right. <laughs> <laughs> excuse me, <laughs> excuse me, <laughs> excuse me, <laughs> <laughs> excuse me. <laughs> I just need a. <laughs> I need <laughs> I need a wake-up call tomorrow morning. Can I get a wake-up call at 8 a.m. tomorrow morning? Can I get another wake-up call at 810 810, please? Can I, can I Can I get a fluffy pillow too? Because the ones that I got are too What does this have to do with the hotel? <laughs> I just want a fluffy pillow That's and two wake-up calls. I don't need the Hitler imagery. Right. Or the Hitler remix. I don't, uh,
2: don't care for that. There's something interesting about the dynamic of having two of you on stage. And I want to talk about that a little bit. Um, you are a double act and you are twins distinguished visually, basically just by the fact that one of you wears glasses. Yeah. Um, among other things, but yes.
5: But the main thing is that.
2: Yeah. Uh, functionally. (laughs) Sure. I'm, Randy's wearing a baseball hat right now too, yeah, but, but uh and you're wearing different clothes. But, you don't wear matching outfits. I anymore. mean sometimes you perform thank in God. sailor suits. Yes. But, um those are special uh, USO shows. So <laughs> USO issue. Very special. Now that they've repealed don't ask don't tell. That's yeah. correct. So uh I I I want to ask you a little bit about that and how you developed the style that you perform in because There are sort of classic double-axe styles, Mm -hmm. and you don't do those things. You are not the Smothers Brothers. Mm -hmm. Um, Did you ever try being the Smothers Brothers? I don't think we ever— We couldn't.
5: We couldn't do that. I don't think we could do that.
2: Because you're both dumb.
5: Right. Yes, where we both play are the dumb ones. And, I, and yeah. our mom liked the Smothers Brothers best. <laughs> Is that bad? Yeah, preferred Is that preferred <laughs> them to us. <laughs> it's uh, always been a very... <laughs> so, but but what's, fun- <laughs> what's funny about it for us... Or I think what- that's the only conscious decision we've ever made was to not be like other... Duos that we've seen. I think other we, teams. We were this weird entity of this this storytelling two headed monster. That kind of we enjoyed the same things, and sometimes like double teaming from the same side of a point. Uh, and I think it's only recently that we fully understood that what we also have is the ability to, and we love acting, so we also have the ability to play scenes out. Like we have bits in our stand up where we, you know, go into this whole thing of fairy tales about. Just not fully buying the third act of like Snow White, you know, and reading those stories to our kids. It all comes from the truth of reading those stories to our kids. And my daughter really likes fairy tales, and it made me question how are these stories standing the test of time? It's the worst writing. It's so lazy. The fact that fo Fum, I smell the blood of an English man, doesn't rhyme, and yet you made up the words fee-fi-fo and Fum, to me, blows my mind. We're like, how, how does that, that accept th- we were like something else is at work here, yeah, right? I bet the Brothers Grimm got a lot of creative like notes from their publishers throughout the whole process and they're like, "You know what? F- this, I don't care if this doesn't rhyme. We're drawing a line in the sand. Try to make us change it." And you know the publishers tried to do that. Like in the 11th hour they're still kissing these guys' ass trying to get them to change. They're like, "Brothers Grimm, you guys, we love this story. Who is a genius? Who comes up with this? You a stalk that grows in one day? What? Magic beans? That's genius. A goose that out golden eggs come on pawn. the merchandising possibilities it's, are amazing it's smart marketing it's marketing we just came up with a we word. just made up a, we word, just came came up up with a word you are i have one note it's not even a note it's not even a thought to say it's a thought is to make too big of a deal out of nothing here's the bad version don't do this but do something exactly like it fee fi fan i smell the blood of an english man We imagine the Brothers Graham sitting across the desk. They're like,
2: you f- write it. You do okay, it. if you're so smart. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guests are Randy and Jason Sklar, known collectively as the Sklar Brothers. It's because they're brothers. They're twin comedians and actors who host the podcast Sklar Bro Country and have a new stand-up comedy CD, Henderson's and Daughters. You're- Sports has never been a huge part of your act, Mm-hmm. But sports has always been a has often been a huge part of your career. Mm-hmm. Um, I think because uh, uh, "Cheap Seats," your ESPN classic show, was uh, was your big break. Uh, may still be the thing that you're best known for. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and I think it's interesting that in recent years you have drawn those two things closer and closer together. Um, and I wonder if that's, like, self-conscious. If you're part of your thing is, like, we want to bring the sports stuff and the alt-comedy stuff into one thing rather than having it feel like parallel tracks. Well, I mean, I don't know if you can't. There's a
5: point at which they won't go. It's like two magnets <laughs> pushing against each other, and they just won't go that way. What we try to do is say with our podcast that—and and Patton Oswalt's a great guest to have on the podcast because he— understands this as a nerd of other things like comic books and movies and stuff like that. He's like, there is no difference between the sports nerd and the, com- and the comic book nerd and the comedy nerd and this. You, it's all nerddom, but in different ways. And so that's where we try. And, and so we try and say, the thing is we can't assume that an alternative audience knows too much. Like there's a joke that we tell in our act about... Uh, our friend Morgan Murphy, who's a very funny comedian, asked us once in a funny way, and I just love this joke. Like She said, did you guys – did you take 9-11 harder than most people because, because you're, you're twins? twins. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, it's a great question. And I was like, OK. Well, to be honest with you, there was one moment on 9-12-2001 where I was like, oh, my god, are we next? And, <laughs> and then the the sports nerd in us – Every time wants to then make this joke, and we do it on stage, but to a lot of times to just very little laughter – which is the, the sports nerd says, and then, Jay then like, I called Hakeem Olajuwon and Ralph Sampson. And I was like, do not hang out together because they're going after <laughs> they're twins. They're, they're going, going after, after t- towers. These are you guys two are the guys who in the 1980s played for the Houston Rockets and they were called the Twin Towers. It just to us is like, <laughs> I was like, you can hang out with Clyde Drexler, Drexler individually. Another player from those teams. And we go that far. And so for us, there's something wonderful and to be able to kind of go that far. It's almost like someone like Patton making a silver surf for joke, or or whatever, you know that like, or Brian or, or Brian Posehn making a deep metal ju- heavy metal joke, and right. it's like we don't care. I we're kind of at the point now where we can go to that place, and that's fine. Although we do realize. We got this new show coming out on the History Channel and it's not about sports at all, it's more about statistics. Even though statistics have a lot to do with sports, for us we're like we're glad cuz it's kind of t- sending us out into a broader area where we're still trying to be very specifically our own brand of comedy, but to try and stay in that broad area I think is is good for us. We don't want to go so far down the road of sports and just sports.
2: I think maybe the last time we talked you were working on this uh show for tops trading cards sure. called Back on Tops a uh, very funny show probably the best uh trading card themed comedy show ever <laughs> you put it in one, of the ba- one of the best one of the top two or three and um that's a theme in our career and you worked on this show with a lot of really famous athletes mm-hmm. and i i wonder what the experience is like um doing i mean here's the thing like I think a lot of comedians uh do comedy because um because of you know I don't I don't really subscribe to the theory that uh all comedians have black holes deep inside their soul that they're trying to fill with laughter Neither do I. However, uh I do think that uh most comedians uh uh most comedians get funny because uh other things were difficult for them mm-hmm. um and so they worked on funny because that was the thing that they were good at so they're usually not necessarily good at the other stuff right yeah, um, yeah. or at least weren't good at the <clears throat> late bloomers and the other that's stuff. Right. that's right sure right um yeah
5: like you never see anytime i see like i saw a picture of Chappelle recently and he's like all worked out and jacked up. And I, part of me in my, I mean, he's still one of the funniest, one of the funniest people I've ever seen or known in my entire life. Go back and watch the special he did in DC. Hey, <laughs> baby, it's like, I'm up in the club. It honestly is, it's just, I mean, I got forget, kids, to feed. <laughs> forget, <laughs> got kids forget, to feed. Forget about the Chappelle Show, which is one of the best shows Comedy shows I've ever seen, and sketch comedy shows, but like he's amazing. But he worked out, and I got a little like, oh god, don't don't go piscopo on me, <laughs> you know, don't piscopo the situation where it's like, you know, you when see, you were the skinny guy. Just doing your thing, yeah. it just it's what you're saying you have time to what are you working on here you're working on your body you're working on this it, you know it kind of like threw me a little bit
2: so but whereas a a professional athlete is someone who work i mean i i i don't think you can become a professional athlete without working as hard as a person can work um, being as driven as a person can be i mean i don't think that i think that there are You know, very few professional athletes who aren't. Uh, as hardworking and driven as any human being in, on you Earth. can't be. Maybe you golf. Maybe golf. Golf, maybe.
5: But yeah. you, you can't, I don't think <laughs> you still, think still you have can. to work on the game. You still have to work on the game. I mean, John Daly is a guy who... Yeah, that like guy's a, a schlub, but... He's a game, game in your country album. If you're yeah, right. exactly. Tim Heron, Lumpy Heron. I mean, uh, look, the thing is, and we talk about this with... Don
2: Caveman Robinson former San Francisco uh, Giants God, pitcher. Don Robinson. Rick, so a good Rick, hitter for a pitcher, though. Rick Russell. Yeah, but Wait, Big Daddy. Who was the guy who's...
5: a Rick Roden had one leg looks shorter <laughs> than another. Uh, I think that they... We talk about this with athletes a lot. I think trying to make it in the comedy world or trying to make it in the entertainment industry or trying to make it as an athlete, they're very similar. You could be doing well and great on one level, but every time you go up a level, it's harder and harder. You have to The work. funnel gets smaller and fewer people luck. squeeze through. You need You need things on your side. It's like there are, a lot, it, there are very, a lot of parallels. And we that's where we connected with the athletes that we met on Back on Tops is that we know where you what it takes, hopefully, what it takes for you to be doing. Doing this on the highest level, we get it. I mean, it's so hard to even get there, and I don't even think we're there yet. But it's like we see. Yeah, we're it like is. playing in Europe right now for the yeah. NBA. We're like NBA Europe, maybe if, 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 if that. that much. If that, maybe we're in the CBA. But it's uh you know, but I definitely you got to work hard. I think for us. I think being twins was a weird entity. We were always like this considered this weird entity, especially at a time when the people weren 't taking fertility drugs, and the incidence of twins were much. It was like one in eighty nine when we were kids now it 's like one in thirty something we learned from the stat show that we did that we 're doing on history and so it's it was more of a fascinating thing. There weren't as many twins out there. So you're twins, you immediately have people's attention. And people are like, this is weird. You guys are weird, you know, and then they're looking at you. Weird or fascinating. Weird or fascinating, but they have their preconceived notions of what twins are like. Do you guys have mental telepathy? Do you guys do you switch on people? Do you find it? And and for us, I think we took all of that to say we got a little upset in our own minds of saying like, don't tell us how to be who we are. You're you're trying to create a life for us. This This is is even as kids. as, As kids, we knew it, whether we could articulate it or not, we were like, don't tell us what to do. Like, we don't want to switch classes. I don't want to be in his class. His cl- I don't know my class enough to now go into his class and do something. It's stupid. It's the dumbest idea for a, a prank or a joke. Who are you pulling it on? You're trying to pull it on the, <laughs> on the teacher? It's like mistaken identity means nothing unless you commit a crime. It just is like, it's such a weird thing. And it's not fun for us like that. You just told us what we had to do. And that makes us so I I don't think our comedy came out. We
2: had great. You really are upset about the idea that you would switch classes. It's I was you. You started. They started describing it like and I thought that. It was a goof, but you are actually angry at people who th- – at kids who thought that you would, as a prank – or adults. Switch classes. Or adults.
5: It's a dumb thing. Or it's switch stupid. on girls. Switch just- on girls was another thing. And, like, why would you do that? Like, what what type of a person – like, really ask yourself, what type of person would switch on a girl maybe that you were interested in or like what would you switch to get to the other, to a better girl? I don't understand.
2: Shakespeare character.
5: I guess so. We just didn't understand what, well, it's very Shakespearean, but we didn't understand where that was coming from and it wasn't us. And so I think we said right off the bat, that's not who we are. What can we do? Now that we have people's attention, people are, they're focused on us because they think it's weird or fascinating. What can we do that's different than what they think we're going to do? Yeah, what was, if what if we did it our way? What if we did something different? What if we were just trying to be funny, or th- we were huge fans of comedy, even back when we were ten years old? Like, what if what if we were just we were funny? Like the light shined on us from people having attention, and we made people laugh, and there was a tremendous amount of satisfaction. And I think there's deeper roots in that, and just that our dad was a funny guy, and we saw the value in him being able to make people laugh, even strangers. And so, I mean, I think. That's where we gravitated towards. But it wasn't filling a deep, dark hole. But it was more in a sort of in reaction a reaction to or kind of saying, we want to define who we are. And I feel like that's carried through even to this day right now. And it sometimes feels foolish when we're trying to feed and clothe our families that, hey, we're going to go into this profession that is really difficult to succeed in. And then we're going to take the one thing that's really identifiable about ourselves and we're going to not use that. We're going to swim upstream even further. And so that can be sometimes hard, but I think we've made the right decision.
2: If you meet a- an athlete, in doing your uh, sports theme comedy, mm-hmm. and then they turn out to be good at comedy. Uh, is that kind of annoying? And you're like, give me a break? <laughs> yeah, no, Kevin
5: Love, who's a basketball player for... Uh, who does he play for now? He's Timber- Timberwolves, Timberwolves still. And uh, he was really funny. He was funny and he was only 18. I'm like, <laughs> damn, this guy's like improvising and he's really funny. If he wasn't seven feet tall and incredibly skilled at basketball... He probably would have found his way to UCB. But I, I but I, I also it. feel like it's seven feet tall. People are looking at you. So it's what, how do you handle yourself in that scenario? And I think, invariably, some people will be like, I'm going to be a goof. I'm going to make people laugh. Like, I'm going to diffuse the tension of here's a guy who's a foot and a half taller than most of the people he's hanging out with. I'm going to diffuse it and just be silly. All the jokes that you're going to make about me, how's the weather up there? How are you going to bump your head on this and that? How do you get inside of a car? All that stuff, I'm going to diffuse it by actually being funnier than your the stupid things that you're throwing. Do your you ever
2: switch about. with other people in other classes?
5: Ever, yes. do you ever switch with, I switch with Kevin Love in our scene do you Never ever switch did. with Manute Bull <laughs> yes <laughs> have you ever killed a lion yes you, <laughs> did Manute Bull kill a lion I think yeah he, Manute Bull did kill a lion and he's dead he Minute Bull also celebrity boxed uh, the, William the Refrigerator Perry that was
2: really sad though that was really <laughs> was
5: it sad I think the only yeah, I saw been, it and it was really but sad but also Manute Bull played hockey too
2: Manute bowl did it for charity, and William Refrigerator Perry did it for cocaine. Yeah, he did, he it, did for, it for himself. Did it for food. And charity did was for, for, the, food. for the it was for the food for, for the, the fridge. Food himself. refrigerator, his own food bank. Manute bowl did it for uh, for the people of his homeland, the Sudan. His That's right. War torn homeland. Yeah, it's it's really at one point. Uh, Manute Bowl got offered uh, got offered like a. Uh, Uh, cabinet level job in the government of the Sudan and turn it down because, uh, they were horrible government.
5: Yeah. I mean, that was another great call. Uh, How despite
2: the fact that he was so broke that, uh, Chris Mullen had to like give him money to live. Mm -hmm. How many
5: didn't develop a whole round of Tupperware? Manute, the minute bowls. bowls. I mean, the minute <laughs> bowls, and it was the type of bowls that you could cook. cook They're be, really tall. They're really, really tall on the side, taller than your average bowls. Taller than your average bowls, so uh, you can put a lot of cereal in them and a lot of t- and a lot of stuff. Or they, minute. They bo- they're, or the minute, minute bowls the minute bowls are the smaller version of the minute, minute bowls. bowls the right. minute bowls are the smaller version of those and they block everything in your refrigerator <laughs> and it, or just like little things to smoke weed out of little tall <laughs> things minute have bowls have you packed the minute bowl <laughs> I yeah. have you can put twice as much <laughs> so weed in it it's so deep bongs. it's very
2: tall bong I so have deep. a 7 foot 7 inch bong the bong itself isn't it's that called that minute tall called a minute just bowl the actual the bowl, bowl
5: the, itself is taller than, than the, the bong. bong is it? I'm smoking out of this bong but the bowls I have to light It's a minute bowl.
2: Tell me about this History Channel show that you've got uh, coming up about statistics.
5: Yes. It's called the uh, United Stats of America. And it's about how statistics tell the story of why we are who we are at this moment. Like each show starts with a statistic. One of the shows is uh, we used to be the tallest nation of the world until 1950. And now we're ninth. So what happened? We're behind Belgium. Um, what, oh,
2: those Belgians! Those waffle <laughs>
5: eaters. Bastards. I won't even watch In Bruges. Uh, and anyway. I won't even eat my fries with mayonnaise. Um, it, it's pretty shocking and upsetting, but it's interesting. And it un, sort of unearths a ton of other stats about how we live, how we eat, how we work. And it ends up sort of being a sociological exploration of America using stats as the entry point. So... That's an episode. We do one on time. We do one on space. We do one on death. We do one on... What are the seven inventions that moved us around in this country? Population shifts. Population shifts. So it kind of is like a way to sort of look at the story of America through stats. And obviously, you know, they wanted a host for the show that could bring it to life and make it funny because stats on their own aren't necessarily that riveting but it it, it worked out great for us I mean the guy we we weren't even in the mix to do to audition for the show and they were they had had a casting session in New York and then they had one in LA and the guy from left, right. It's the same company that did uh, this American life for showtime, really quality, amazing production company. They care about making it look good. It looks really cool. Um, So they're great people working on it. The guy from left, right media was driving around to their casting session uh, or to a casting session. And he heard us on NPR doing the little sports report that we do on the Madeline Brand Show here in, at KPCC in uh, Southern California, and he was like – This is exactly what we're looking for. They're taking this sort of foreign subject of sports and they're explaining it to people who might not understand it and they're trying to be funny, which they are. He's like, we got to get these guys to come in. And that's how we got called in to do the show or to audition for the show and then we got it. But it's kind of a rare situation where it works out like that in this industry. And And so we shot all six of them. It started out as being just a a pilot that was for internal use only, that they were going to shoot one, not, not even a finished version like a rough cut of what it was and then they were like let's do six of these and so now we're waiting hopefully April it will air It will air start in airing. April and we'll see what how it does I mean part of me says look it's probably you never know how it's going to do the shows that really rate well on History Channel are like Swamp People and Pawn Stars and American Pickers and this is not that okay this isn't someone finding a Civil War musket in their attic and which by the way those shows are brilliant I mean those shows are like Redneck Antiques Roadshow it's like literally literally Literally, like, I found this jar in my closet and what's it worth? And, like, you literally – I've been on flights watching those shows and cannot stop watching for hours and hours because I'm like, I want to know. What is Is it worth? Is it real? I mean, So you get a beginning, a middle, then they make you wait through the break and then you find out what happens. And it just goes over and over again. It resets and it's kind of genius. And so those shows just draw tons of people because that's – kind of mindless really great entertainment solid like let's just watch this and turn our brains off ours is a little different ours is comedy it requires attention focus learning it's just it's different so it's yeah it requires people we'll see how it. it does there may be a ceiling as to how, how well this show can do but I love it and would love to continue doing it And, and feel yeah like we're proud of them so far as, I, as I put scientists. it this way if this is the thing that people know us from you mentioned like Cheapsies before in Scarborough Country and you know we've done Entourage and done some other things that people really know us from but if this is the thing and history does pretty well their their numbers are pretty good if this is the thing that most people know us from i'll be happy i'll be ecstatic i mean that's all we've ever wanted to do in our career is make sure that the next step of whatever we do is something that if people saw it we wouldn't be embarrassed about it
2: well Randy Sklar, Jason Sklar, the Sklar Brothers Thank you so much for joining me on Bullseye
5: Thanks for having us for Having us,
2: Randy and Jason Sklar, the Sklar Brothers Have a comedy CD It is called Hender Sons and Daughters They're also the hosts of Sklarbro Country uh, Which you can find online at Earwolf.com Every week on Bullseye, we close with a cultural suggestion from me to you. It's The Outshot. In 2000, Curb Your Enthusiasm premiered on HBO. In 2001, The Office premiered on the BBC. They were at the forefront of a comedy revolution, twisting the knife of social awkwardness until all you could do was laugh. But those shows weren't without precedent. In 1997, a veteran comedy writer named Ken Finkelman launched a CBC show called The Newsroom. Finkelman wrote, directed, and starred in the show, playing the news director of an unnamed Canadian TV news show. That character, George Findlay, is one of the most brilliantly horrible men ever to appear on television. George is the kind of man whose concern for immigrants correlates directly to his concern for his BMW. The
5: parking guy told me he'd meet with me.
4: He will squeeze you in tomorrow on his break, but he can't promise anything.
5: If all the spots are gone, how busy can he be? What does he mean he'll squeeze me in?
4: Well, apparently he has to re-stencil names on spaces all day.
5: They get their names stenciled on the spaces? I'm a news director. I don't even get a space. I have to park across the street for seven bucks a day, 15 when there's a ball game. The guy that parks my car is an Ethiopian doctor. That's the truth. This is not what they're trained to do. This is what's wrong with our immigration policy. They should let these guys practice medicine. I'd rather have them operate on my heart than park my car. Do you know the three scariest words an Ethiopian doctor can
2: say to a BMW owner? Huh, you? Leave the keys. George isn't a bloviator like Ricky Gervais was. He's an avoider, a dancer, willing to go to any length to avoid the uncomfortable, and almost always failing.
4: His agent spoke to you about a lunch, and he wants to set up a time and place. Not now. Okay. Is this
1: the announcer with Lou Gehrig's disease? Yes, I'm aware of his condition, and I'll talk to him later, all right? Well, when? I don't know when. Later. He's kind
3: of old. I feel sorry for him.
1: I have my reasons for not wanting to get pushed into this lunch, okay?
2: He's an over-the-hill announcer
1: who can do nothing for your career except diminish your reputation as a player by being seen with you in public. Ding, ding, ding. So you guys think I'm afraid to take this lunch? Well, I think if it was Lou Gehrig with Bill Coogan's disease rather than the other way around, you'd take the lunch. Exactly. Okay. Book a reservation for two. Cafe Brussels. It's a restaurant where everyone big in this business eats. Satisfied? I'm impressed. Now, I'm not a person without feelings. Right? But this dog. When is this dog going to die? Really? I mean, what's the prognosis on this dog?
2: If you haven't spent some time with George, you owe it to yourself. The Newsroom is on DVD. That's it for Bullseye this week. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones, our producer, Julia Smith. Nick White, our editor. Our intern is Joe Molinelli. Our thanks this week to Alan Farley at KALW for engineering the San Francisco side of our Daniel Handler interview. You should probably listen to his show, Book Talk. Yeah, I listened to KALW. Didn't think I was going to come with that, did you, San Francisco? Book Talk, Alan Farley, KLW. Our theme music is Huddle Formation by The Go Team, thanks to The Go Team and their label Memphis Industries for letting us use that. You can find us online at MaximumFun.org. And remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. I'm Jesse Thorne.
4: Production of Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is supported in part by the menswear blog Put This On. Presenting the Put This On Gentlemen's Association. Members receive a handmade pocket handkerchief in the mail every sixty days. More information at putthison.com and by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered. Online at ask.metafilter.com.
2: Support for this program comes from this station and Public Radio International stations nationwide and is made possible in part by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the Ford Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation.
4: PRI Public Radio International.